I spoke with a business owner some years ago who claimed to have solved the problem of evil in the world. Evil, he informed me, was just an illusion. If we would just learn to perceive that evil is not real, it would disappear from our experience. It wasn't very Christian, I'll admit, but I really had the temptation to punch the guy in the nose and say, was that real? Was that just an illusion? I think the pain would have been quite real, and so would the lawsuit he filed to hold me accountable for my evil assault against his well-being. Evil is no illusion. Suffering is no figment of the imagination. Think of just these ten years, this first decade of the 21st century, disease and famine, tornadoes, tsunamis, hurricanes, floods, droughts, mudslides, earthquakes, have claimed countless lives and have inflicted widespread suffering and devastation. Yet despite nature's wrath, it is what people do to one another that constitutes the greatest source of evil. Genocide and terrorism, war and corruption, abuse, betrayal, and hatred cause widespread death and untold suffering year after bloody year and no amount of wishful thinking can pretend it away. It's not an illusion. While the vast majority of people realize that evil is real, many believe that evil is nothing more than cruel fate operating as a random force in an ultimately meaningless universe. We are the pawns of evolutionary laws that blindly crush the weak. Through nature, the weak are crushed and there's the abuse of the vulnerable in society, in our relationships. Now others factor God into the picture, but this does not solve all of the problems in and of itself. Some years ago, a university student handed me a book that grappled with the dilemma of evil in a world created by a loving God. Rabbi Kushner's book, What Bad Things Happen to Good People, became an acclaimed national bestseller. And the book opens with this heart-wrenching story of Kushner's three-year-old son, Aaron, who was diagnosed with progeria, or rapid aging disease. Kushner recounts the horror of hearing a doctor tell him that Aaron would never grow any taller than about three feet. He would lose his hair, his skin would become wrinkled, and he would die of old age in his teens. This horror was all too real and indescribably painful for two loving parents who were left to ask, why us? Why our family? Why our son? Why, God, why? Kushner was aware of no sin that would press God to punish him in this way. And even if there was, why would God punish a three-year-old? Kushner writes very honestly, why should he, Aaron, have to suffer physical and psychological pain every day of his life? Why should he have to be stared at and pointed at wherever he went? Why should he be condemned to grow into adolescence, see other boys and girls beginning to date, and realize that he would never know marriage or fatherhood? Like most people, my wife and I had grown up with an image of God as an all-wise, all-powerful parent figure who would treat us as our earthly parents did, or even better. He would protect us from being hurt or from hurting ourselves and would see to it that we got what we deserved in this life. Like most people, I was aware of the human tragedies that darkened the landscape, the young people who died in car crashes, the cheerful, loving people wasted by crippling diseases, the neighbors and relatives whose retarded or mentally ill children people spoke of in hushed tones. But that awareness never drove me to wonder about God's justice or to question His fairness. I assumed that He knew more about the world than I did. Then came that day in the hospital 
when the doctor told us about Aaron and explained what progeria meant. Every year on Aaron's birthday, my wife and I would rejoice in his growing up and growing in skill. But we would be gripped by the cold foreknowledge that another year's passing brought us closer to the day when he would be taken from us. That day came two days after Aaron's 14th birthday. And his grieving father sought answers for this excruciating pain of a teen who died of old age. Why do bad things happen to good people? In answering that question, Kushner insists that we are, and I quote, forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good. Well, which one is it for you? Is God infinitely loving and good or is He omnipotent and sovereign over all that comes to pass? Well, as we come to look at the Bible honestly, we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. As we hear the text of Scripture unfolded, and as we have week after week in the series on providence, we know of God's love. We know God's sovereign ordination of all that comes to pass. And we know then that this is not a legitimate option. Yet if we have come to believe what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign omnipotence and about God's infinite love, we must come to terms with God's relationship to evil His relationship to evil in the natural realm of disaster and disease and His relationship to the evil of the sinful choices that people make. What does God have to do with evil? I think often we're really tempted to answer that question with the either or. And we tend to lean in our view of God on one side or the other that we have an all-sovereign, powerful God Nothing happens outside of His watch care and His direction, but in an honest, quiet moment, we wonder if He really loves us. If He really is infinitely good. Or we may think that He is a loving, fatherly type who does all that He can for His children, but there's a certain place of limitation. We wonder if God is not really incapable of staving off the suffering and the evil that visits this world. You know, how you answer this question profoundly influences your relationship with God and your understanding of the world in which you live. As we've come to this point in our series, it is clear in text after text of Scripture that the Bible reveals God ordains all that comes to pass in, con- in perfect conformity to His sovereign will, which He asserts with absolute power. To deny that is to deny the revelation of God's Word. What we have not considered yet with any detail is how this sovereign power of God relates to evil especially to the sinful choices people make, particularly in view of the truth as well that God is a loving God of infinite goodness and compassion. So what does God have to do with sin? The answer is woven throughout the pages of Scripture, but I'd like to take several narratives and look at them from the angle of this question. Now please understand that none of these narratives is given merely to answer this question. I don't know that anyone fully answers this question. And I'm choosing several of them in order to continue to bring to bear the Word of God and its revelation upon this question. In fact, we could pile up many texts and narratives of Scripture that make the very same point. We'll take the time that we have today to look at a few. Each of these narratives is about larger matters, as I've said, but each reveals God's relationship to evil. And it is crucial that we bring our thoughts, our ideas, and our faith in line with what God has revealed about Himself and about His character. 
The first narrative so well known to us as all of these are. But we want to again look at it from this particular angle. The first is the implosion of Job's kingdom. Job chapter 1. The implosion of Job's kingdom. We read in Job chapter 1, if you'll make your way there, in verse 1, that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. All of that sounds like a lot of work to us, and it was, but it was the way that you marked wealth. It was the evidence of wealth to have all of these possessions, this livestock. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Who is this Job? He is a wealthy man whom God has uniquely blessed. He is a righteous, God-fearing man who exercises spiritual watch care over his family. He is not, from anything that we can see, uniquely subject to corrective discipline, as we learn explicitly in these next verses, beginning at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered My servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God is pleased with Job. In fact, God singles Job out as a man whose life stands as a rebuke to Satan. God knew where Satan was, but He wants to talk about it. And Satan does not bring up to God, you know, I saw this, this servant of yours, Job, and what a righteous and godly man. He has no interest in talking about such things. God brings him to this topic. And Satan wagers that if God would permit Job to suffer, his love would evaporate. And notice the interplay here, verses 11 and 12. Satan says to God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Satan knows that Job's well-being is preserved by the sovereign hand of God. Now, how does God respond? Oh, Satan, listen. Get behind me. You know I have nothing to do with disaster. That's your deal. That's the powers of darkness. That has nothing to do with me and you know it. Now get out of here. It's not what he says. Satan knows who he's talking to here. Satan cannot bypass God. He must petition God for access to Job. Satan knows the Scriptures we learn from Jesus' temptation. He knows, 1 Samuel 2, that the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. 
He knows the word of Amos. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? He knows these ideas. He knows these concepts that Scripture reveals. He knows that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. We then notice in verse 12 that God concedes to touch all that Job has by choosing to put Job in Satan's hand. And yet, God sovereignly restricts Satan's freedoms with Job. You can touch his possessions. You cannot touch him. Verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, undoubtedly a longer conversation, but they're lining up. There came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job doesn't know what's going on. He does not know where this will end. And he loves these children. And he rises, verse 20, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground. And the text says, Job worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Revelation helps us here to say, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Who does Job think took the lives of his children? Cruel chance? A random universe? A God who loves him but has no power to stop the wind? Has no power to stop the free choices of human beings? Job loses ten children in a natural disaster and he says, God chose to take my children from me. Who does Job think stole his camels and his donkeys and his oxen? Who does Job think murdered his servants? Well, evil marauders stole them. Stole this livestock and murdered his servants. And yet Job sees it as God having willed for this to be. And we're tempted to say, you know, wait a minute, isn't Job wrong in all of this? It's Satan and what he's done. That's why these things have happened. Job, if you only knew what was going on behind the scenes, you're charging God with evil. You're charging God with having something to do this. God has nothing to do with it. It's Satan who has bought the right to harm you. The text does not permit this, does it? Verse 12, we read that the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. God sovereignly turning over this opportunity to Satan. And verse 22 of chapter 1, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So does God murder servants 
who are just doing their job? No. God cannot sin. He cannot be tempted with evil. He turns over to these individuals the freedom to do what they choose to do in violation of God's command to spare life. Does God ordain that murder happens? Yes, He does. God grants Satan and sinners this limited freedom to do what they want to do to violate God's moral desires. But since He grants such freedoms, ultimately we can say that God ordains all that comes to pass. That He ordains that these murderers come in and take the life of these servants. And that a storm comes in and wipes out a building. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Again, God isn't asking where he was in the sense that he doesn't know, but also, again, Satan's not coming and saying, you know what, you are right about Job. God wants to enter into discussion here. And He says, verse 3, to Satan, Have you considered My servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although, and listen to it, you incited Me against him to destroy him without reason. He does not say, I can't believe you did that, Satan. Shame on you for harming this man. He says, you incited me against him. God cannot sin or be tempted by evil, but he ordains that evil happens. He permits Satan the freedom to wipe out a family. He gives marauders the freedom to steal and to kill. One thing God does not do is stand there wringing His hands in utter despair with no capacity to stop those marauders or to still that wind. And honestly, if you were writing the story, would you put it that way? Would you have God say, you incited me against Him to destroy Him? I'd have a hard time writing those words. We've got a lot to learn about God. And we need to allow Scripture to speak. Verse 4, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. We see this again. Satan, stretch out your hand, God. God, He is in your hand. God grants to Satan the freedom to harm Job. Verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Some have conjectured that the only reason that she was spared the fate of her children was to issue this temptation. His suitable helper saying, curse God. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. That is, as one of the morally dull women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job believes again that his physical suffering is ordained by God. And we are assured that in drawing that conclusion, Job did not falsely charge God. Job does not know about Satan's involvement in all of this at this point. He simply realizes God's sovereign right to order the circumstances of Job's life as God wills. So we come back to this question, why do bad things happen to good people? 
draw again from Kushner's book. He concludes this in his reading of Job. I quote, Forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful and a powerful God who is not totally good, Job chooses to believe in God's goodness. In other words, he reads this text and says that bad things happen to good people because God cannot do anything to stop them. May I suggest that he has read his conclusion into the narrative. Where do we find the authority to draw such a conclusion on the basis of this text? Do we find a God who says to Satan, there's things you can do in your dark purposes that I can't stop. Go ahead and have your way. Not at all. And is that Job's interpretation? Not at all. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Every time that there is a natural disaster, every time there is a terrorist attack, every time some evil rears its head to cause suffering in this world, some spiritual leader will speak out to assure us that God had nothing to do with this. It's there. I I remember the pictures on the screen. I remember the articles that have been written every time. Somebody feels they must move in and defend God, telling us He has nothing to do with this. Is it a good way forward? Is it a biblical way forward? Or some religious leader might tell us that God is punishing someone by this event. And maybe He is, but we're not given revelation to know this with certainty or specificity any more than we're Job's counselors. When you look at the book of Job, in fact, both of those answers seem very concerning. What we can know is that neither is supported by God's revelation. That somebody's being punished for their sin... Or that God in some way has nothing to do with evil, is not involved in it, and that these forces operate outside of His will and His power. They're not options for us provided by the book of Job. What Job does teach us is that evil is never random. Cruel fate can never place a single finger on the helm of the universe. Ever. Nothing happens by chance. Ever. Job also teaches us that no demonic scheme can be imposed upon us unless, if I could put it bluntly, God signs off on it. Job teaches us that all that comes to pass is ordained by God for a a purpose. So why do bad things happen to good people? Because God's powers are limited? I think too many Christians agree with Kushner on that point against Scripture. Perhaps far more, no way too much Bible, to assume that God's powers are limited and then in a quiet moment wonder why He doesn't really love us as we would love our children. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, ironically, that's one question the book of Job really never answers. It is very common in biblical study materials for authors to describe the theme of the book of Job as why the righteous suffer. For the life of me, I don't know where we get that idea because that's precisely what's not answered. When God weighs in at the end, after everyone has had their opportunity to say all the things they have to say about why this event took place, what does God say? He might put it a little more kindly than this, but he essentially says, what do you know about running a universe? And that's the end of his answer. Where were you when I called the world into being? Now we must understand that comes from a loving God, an infinitely loving God, who pours out nothing but goodness upon His people. But he does say, what do you know about running the universe? What we learn from Job's experience is that God can be trusted. 
that He must be trusted, not necessarily why He permits us to suffer. What Job teaches us is that when we suffer, we have the opportunity to display our trust in God's goodness and glory to the powers of darkness. Now we're getting to something. Now we're seeing what the book really says. How does Job respond when God removes His blessing? Let's bring ourselves back to the scene. Here is Job in this intense grief. All of his children wiped out. And there is Satan hovering with keen, gleeful anticipation. His ears tingling to hear a curse slip from Job's lips and to prove God unjust and wrong. And as Satan is bent over to hear the words, he hears this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. By blessing God in the midst of this abject suffering, Job triumphantly displays God's splendor to the powers of darkness with this one simple response. Job unwittingly puts Satan in his place and he puts God in his. From all he knows, he's left alone in this world. What he doesn't understand is the cosmic powers hover over to hear these words of praise to God. Job has triumphed in his misery. These truths just continue to pile up throughout Scripture. And this relationship that God has with evil is consistently presented in the text of Scripture. We wouldn't say it this way. We might not write it this way. We might struggle to think this way. But this is the God that's revealed to us. From the implosion of Job's kingdom, let's go to Chronicles of Egypt. I invite you to Genesis 45. We'll move a bit more quickly through this, but let's see again how these same themes begin to pile up. First of all, we see that God uses the sin of Joseph's brothers to save Israel. In Genesis 37-44, through Joseph's jealous brothers conspire to sell him into slavery as a teenager. Now these are his brothers, and we know brothers don't always get along when they're with each other, but if there's anybody going to stand up for you when an enemy shows up, when a stranger shows up, it should be your brother. But sibling rivalry took an evil turn. And Joseph's brothers, think of it, they sell him into slavery as if they had that right. As if there was no love to stave off such an evil intent. They sell him to traders headed to Egypt. So as this caravan is heading off across the desert, Joseph's homeland of Israel fades into the distance. He is stripped of his freedom and exiled from his homeland. He loses his family, his father's love, his language, his identity. If anyone ever had a reason to become bitter and vengeful, it was Joseph toward his brothers. We know the series of bitter providences visited upon Joseph in Egypt till he comes to the lowest place possible, an imprisoned, forgotten slave. Then sweet providence shines on Joseph. He is delivered from prison and becomes a powerful ruler in Egypt. His brothers and his father are starving back in Israel. They come to Egypt to find food for their starving families to stave off hunger. And Joseph eventually then reveals himself to his brothers. Chapter 45, thinking of the evil that they have done to him. We read it from just this angle. Verse 4 of chapter 45, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh 
and Lord of all His house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to My Father and say to Him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made Me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to Me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell, you, Israel, and I will provide for you. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near Me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have there, I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? Verse 5, you sold me. Verse 7, God sent me before you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Well, wasn't it them who sent him there? Well, of course it was. They willingly conspired and chose to send their brother to Egypt as a slave. But ultimately, it was God. He is the ultimate cause in every situation. Joseph's brothers willingly chose to sell him into slavery. But God prevails here over this evil act. Imagine this scenario. You don't just walk up to Pharaoh's gate and say, Pharaoh, I know you don't know me, but I represent a small and growing nation of people, a large family. And I don't know if you mind if we just would hang out here for 400 years while the Canaanites' iniquity grows to ferment and deserves God's judgment. And we'll just be here for about 400 years and then we're going to go back to our land. I hope you don't mind that we come in and use your resources and live here. You just don't do that. That's not going to work. God knows what He's doing and He employs the wicked decision of some brothers against their sibling who is pleading for deliverance, as the psalm tells us. God is in this to bring Joseph to Egypt to preserve the people of Israel. You have not sent me here. God has. He gets a bit more explicit in chapter 50. Following their father Jacob's death, Joseph's brothers pleaded for forgiveness. Chapter 50 and verse 18. 5018, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You devised this evil against me. The word evil speaks of harm, injury, misery, distress. You did this. His brothers willfully harmed their brother. But what they intended for evil, God intended it for good. It can only mean the evil that they intended. The evil that they brought against their brother, selling him into slavery, God meant that evil to work for good. This means that the act of selling Joseph into slavery had two causes and two purposes. Joseph's brothers acted with purpose to harm their brother. They acted freely. They acted willingly. They are not robots with their arms twisted behind their backs to do what God has designed that they have to do against their will. They want their brother sold into Egypt. They willingly sell him and profit from it. But at the same time, God permitted that evil to take place and purpose for it to bring about good. Joseph's brothers sinned. God intended that sin to preserve His people from death. Joseph's not skirting around the issue here. You took me from my father. You stripped me from my homeland. You took my freedom. You took my identity. You forced me to walk the gangplank and drop into a sea of despair. But God meant it for good. As Von Rod puts it, even where no man could imagine it, God had all the strings in His hand. we learn again that no sinner ever schemes alone. No violator ever harms 
with sovereign impunity. No betrayer or abuser has ever had the last word. The evils that people commit in this fallen world are very real. But there is a sovereign God who with masterful and infinite wisdom works all things together for good. We may not always see that as easily as Joseph was able to see it, but Joseph's God is our God. And we can trust Him to work through every evil in our lives for ultimate good. Why do these bad things happen? We cannot ultimately know. We're not going to know the details of it. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But what we can do is trust. Secondly, in the Chronicles of Egypt, God hardens Pharaoh's heart to deliver Israel. As we move to the book of Exodus in chapter 4, Israel did indeed suffer 400 years of slavery as God had prophesied in Genesis 15. Then at the appointed time, God raised Moses up to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Chapter 4 and verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, here's God issuing a command to Pharaoh, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. There will be consequences if you disobey my word. But yet God says, I will harden his heart. So Pharaoh is fully responsible to obey God. Yet God knows that under the prevailing circumstances, Pharaoh will not choose to do so. God's sovereignty over the situation is so pervasive that the Bible does not blush to say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 7 and verse 1, we read the same concept continuing forward. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, continuing to issue the Word of God. But, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will multiply my wonders in Egypt. He will not listen, verse 4. Is God here saying, and just put this in your mind as we come back to it, Lord willing, later in the series, but is God saying here, you know, I'm not really sure what Pharaoh's going to do here. He has absolute freedom to choose A or B. And I think the way I see things lining up, I think He's not going to listen to you. No. He is fully free to obey or not obey God under the circumstances that incline Him as God knows it and foresees the future to disobey Him. He will not obey. In fact, the sense here as we move forward is that God has raised him up to for this very purpose. The Egyptians, verse 5, shall know that I am the Lord. That's what comes of this disobedience. Chapter 9, more explicit, verse 13. Chapter 9, 13, the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present or stand yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God has a purpose in this. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But God doesn't do that. For this purpose, verse 16, I have raised you up to show you my power so that My name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against My people and will not let them go. Let them go, Pharaoh, but you won't. These two crucial concepts of providence. Let's remember them again in light of this text. First, the compatibility of divine sovereignty and human freedom. The confluence of divine will and human will operating 
in history. Both together, they are compatible ideas. God sovereignly wills. People freely choose. Secondly, understanding that freedom, we have the subordination of human freedom to God's sovereign purposes. God defines the circumstances that incline people as they act, or to act as they do. God defines the circumstances that incline people to act as they do. What does He say to Pharaoh? If I had chosen to do so, I could have crushed you by now, but I've not chosen to do so. And as I continue to issue this moral call, under the given circumstances, you will not obey me. I mean, you could see Pharaoh just saying, you know what, I'm going to show him he doesn't know what he's talking about and I am going to obey him. Pharaoh is free to obey God. But he is inclined by the circumstances that prevail and God knows he'll not and he even tells Pharaoh that. We can say it this way, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that the glory of God would be seen and so that the Israelites would be delivered from Egypt. So God could have chosen to alter the circumstances. God knew what would happen had He altered circumstances. But God has spoken to Pharaoh. He is holding him accountable. And He knows precisely how Pharaoh will disregard His will. He could have spoken to him as He did to Abimelech in Genesis 20 when God spared Sarah in Egypt. But to display His glory and save His people in a way that would ever after serve as evidence of God's power and love, God permitted Pharaoh to exercise His free will and thus chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. These are just some very tangible evidences. We can continue to pile up texts that say these very same things. I think a lot of times we read them out of the Scriptures. Because it is troubling to think of God's ordination of evil. But there's simply no way that we can believe God's revelation of truth and believe that evil is random. That it's a meaningless force of fate. That God has nothing to do with it. Nor can we believe that Satan wields evil with such authority that God is powerless to stop it. Evil is very real in this world, but God rules sovereignly over it for His glory and ultimately and always for the salvation of His people. There are aspects of this truth that are disconcerting. And we need to nuance them properly because God is not evil. He is not tempted with evil. He's not the source of evil in any way, shape, or form. What we do need to do is to find comfort in knowing that nothing that enters this world slipped past God's watch. Never does fate put a finger on the helm of the universe. Never. I may never be able to answer why good thing, bad things happen to good people. But I know that nothing can overwhelm God. Nothing is ordained by His sovereign plan that does not serve the best and ultimate purposes for His glory and for our ultimate good. In this I must rest and trust. Not a truth I'll fully comprehend. Not details that I can work out and give explanations and answers. I must trust God to run His universe. And in those honest, haunting moments, when we stop and say, does God really love? Is He really pure love? To the core of His being, does He have our best interest in view? I must always come back to the cross. And to know that there is the evidence of a heart of our God that is poured out to us in absolute love and grace and mercy. Who will withhold nothing that is good from His people? 
He is crushing sin. And He crushes sin and misery and sorrow ultimately by bringing that all down upon the head of His own Son. Jesus was Himself the ultimate victim of evil and unjust suffering. He knows our pain. And He intercedes for us. We may not always know why bad things happen to good people, but we can trust God to run His universe with absolute sovereign power and with infinite perfect love. That we don't understand it does not mean that we cannot trust it. If you are here without Christ as your Savior today, you have not been born again by His Spirit, then you need to know that you caused this death of Christ. It is our sin that led to all of this misery. And it is our sin that led to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is for everyone a call to obey the Gospel of Christ. To trust in His death and in His resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Do not harden your heart against that call. Come to Christ today. Turn from your sin and embrace Him in faith. For those of us who know Him, may we rest in our Father's care. And know that God has a purpose in everything. Father, how weak our faith and how dramatically we must stretch ourselves. I pray that through Your providence, through Your grace, through Your sanctifying purposes, that You will deepen our trust and our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. In His love, in His forgiveness, and in Your providential care of all things. I know the pain in part of people here, the suffering and the trials and the heartaches. We know the pages of the newspaper and the leading reports of the trials and the suffering that go on in this world. God, I pray that we would listen to Your still, small voice. To Your counsel. And that we would have a vision of You that is accurate to Scripture. And that You will thus deepen our faith and our trust and our confidence as we face trials of many sorts to the glory of our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.